Yeah, good evening, America, and welcome to everyone listening across the planet. This is the Author and Artist Hour. Welcome back to the show. This is the Artist and Author Hour, and I'm your host, Tony Londis. And yet again today, we have an amazing guest to talk to you, and he is launching a fabulous new book in December. But before I introduce you to our wonderful guest, here's what you need to know. If you're listening live on Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, Twitch, Twitter, Everyday Women's Network, or anywhere else where you see this show, don't forget to like and subscribe, particularly if you're watching on YouTube. We love our subscribers. The other thing I want you to know is anything that we talk about today, any information you want to know about our guests will be attached to the show. So just look at the show and you will find show notes accordingly attached. I encourage you if you miss any replays of the show or you want to catch up on any of the shows across our platforms, please have a look at Tony TV on Binge Networks, Hero Go, uh, Pad TV, and of course the Tony TV channel app available on Android, Apple, LG, Samsung, Roku, Amazon Fire, and everywhere else. And of course the podcast is available across the planet. Now, each and every week, we do a beautiful tradition, which we started in 2022, and it's called A Welcome to Country, and it's Australia's recognition of the special and important role our Indigenous people play in our country's cultural identity. So today, I want to respectfully acknowledge the people of the Yugamba language region on the Gold Coast, Queensland, Australia the traditional owners of the land on which we meet. And I want to pay my respect to the elders past, present and emerging and all Torres Strait Islander and Aboriginal peoples listening here or watching today. So today we're going to talk about a wonderful new book called Sunrise in Saigon, a novel for our lifetime. Now, before I introduce you, here's what you need to know about the amazing Patrick Greenwood. Patrick, after military service, embarks on a 25-year career in information technology, working in various roles, including sales, engineering, support and design. Many of his inspirations for writing came from his business travels across Vietnam, China, Japan, Taiwan and Portugal. A true believer in listening to one's passion, Patrick started writing early in 2020 based on several trips that he'd done cycling in various countries. His novel, Sunrise in Saigon, Patrick draws upon several non-fiction of non-fictional events rather that happened in Vietnam including the war with the US, the last days of Saigon 
falling and the chaos in and around the US embassy at that time. He remembered these events as a young man and grew up wanting someday to travel back to Vietnam and visit these places himself. In 2012, Patrick did return to Vietnam and found the lost US embassy and the Catholic nuns that helped with Operation Baby Lift. Patrick followed his passion for cycling by completing several bike tours in Ho Chi Minh City and the Mekong Delta regions. Patrick is the holder of bachelor in and an MBA in global marketing, along with competing, uh, completing rather several postgraduate certificate programs in information security, the Internet of Things, and global management from MIT. Patrick is married and resides in Carlsbad, California. And I am so delighted to have Patrick on the show today. Welcome to the show, Patrick. Thank you so much, Tony, for having me. That was a great introduction. I really appreciate it. But thank you so much for having me. <laughs> I wanted to be talking to you. So um, Vietnam is actually one of the places that I've been to a number of times. And I it has special memories for me, both around the atrocities of war and the history of the Vietnam War and then around the people. And the food. Vietnam is just, it's a wonderful place to visit. It's a wonderful place to tour. Um, and I'm glad that I get to share these memories and your memories with our audience today. Now, one of your favorite quotes is, happiness is not a commodity in life. Can you tell us about that, Patrick? Well, that actually was uh, part of the motivation of the book. Um, many times when people are writing uh, historical fictional novels that are inspired by true events, which when this is how this book was written, it, it does talk a lot about how people really try to seek yeah. happiness. And when they finally achieve it, they either take it for granted, they don't really appreciate it enough, or they realize, I need to cherish this moment. I need to take this as a very special moment. Because many times in life, we do have, you know, gaps in time where we're not happy. Uh, and sometimes we, we should be taking journeys. And part of the motivation of the book was to really take that journey from inside, that desire to go somewhere. Like you, you've made a trip to Vietnam yes. several times. Yes. So you've had the, the chance to see pe the people there. And I think one of the motivations of the book was really to kind of share a little bit of the history of Vietnam, share what has happened after the war. Uh, what are the people like? And then, of course, what are the people like that actually left Vietnam that went to other countries? So we have a lot of Vietnamese communities here in America uh, as well. And mm -hmm. I do touch on some of the interesting things about knowing many of them here uh, as mm -hmm. well. But it does really kind of tie to the point of happiness and really what you know, what the main character, Jack Kendall, in the book really did to try to get that happiness in his heart. Yeah, the Vietnamese people are generally very happy people as well. That's been my experience because not only have I visited a number of times, I've volunteered in the hospitals um, in and around Ho Chi Minh as well. Um, so uh, beautiful, happy people and with not very much. Very, very pleasant. I was very um, happily surprised in 2012, but I had a lot of wonderful experiences here in America with Vietnamese people going back to my teens. Um, I had the opportunity when I was attending college in Northern Virginia that had a very large Vietnamese community. 
uh, and being a you know a young man and obviously struggling a little bit in calculus <laughs> among other courses. Oh, um, calculus! But, you know, yeah, but you know you you select your pain in life, right? So yeah. I was uh, I was uh, working uh, at the time was at George Mason University in Northern Virginia, and I was struggling in the library, and I was sitting at a desk and trying to figure out this formula, and just it wasn't there. And this wonderful young lady came over and said, "Don't give up." And she mm -hmm. sat down next to me and she actually helped me figure out the formula of derivative. And I kind of looked mm -hmm. at her and said, hey, my name is, you know, my, my, my name, Patrick Greenwood, very nice to meet you. She goes, I, I'm Win Twan. I'm like, oh, where are you from? She goes, I'm from Vietnam. And, and just, and then she introduced me to a lot of her friends that were in a study group that I ended up joining. So the openness, if you know that many of these people went through so much pain, oh, so much struggle for many years the kindness in them and 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 the and the thoughtfulness of them has definitely came through and i never forget that moment of uh somebody out of nowhere just sat down to try to help me out of uh out of the blue and i never forgot that yeah yeah patrick let's talk about the vietnam talk about vietnam and the vietnam war how has your experience in the vietnam war as a young man impacted on your life well, first of all, I was born in 64 when it started. And so I remember, you know, being as young as four years old and remembering mm -hmm. seeing bits and pieces of it on television, of course. Mm -hmm. But really, when we started getting into 1969 and 1970, when you had more and more people getting drafted, and then you yeah. had a lot of people coming back. And obviously, a lot of the soldiers coming back were treated incredibly poorly, not only by yes. the people, but by the government and, and other people as well. But to really understand Vietnam really took shape for me when I was about eight, when you started seeing, you know, the bombings and then you started seeing the yeah. peace box starting in, in Paris. But it wasn't until I was 11 and I remember listening to the radio and this actually I captured this in the book as well. Mm -hmm. I remember listening to the radio on April 30th of 1975 when Saigon fell and how it was yes. like we interrupt this broadcast to inform you that Saigon has now fallen. Mm -hmm. And, and then kind of the announcer said, and thank God, right, it's finally over. And it, a lot of us were still trying to figure out exactly where this was in the map, right? Where was this geographically and why were we there? And, 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 you know, I scoured through the Washington Post and all the newspapers looking for, you know, what, what's going to happen from here. And what really caught my eye was the Catholic nuns in Operation Baby Lift, where they made an mm -hmm. attempt to try to get the orphans out and President Ford at the yes. time was behind it and how the first plane crashed and the second one managed to get out. But I always was intrigued being raised Catholic, like whatever happened to those nuns? Did they, mm -hmm. Why didn't they get out? They could have been on a transport. The, the Vatican could have gotten them out or somebody could have gotten them out, but they, they didn't leave. Um, and that was really, that was that driven desire in my heart as a person to say, God, I really someday, you know, would like to go there. So I was in the military in the 1980s and I was stationed mm -hmm. in the Far East as well. And, you know, there was never an opportunity to go to Vietnam because it was still in turmoil. But yes. you would see a lot of refugees coming into the Philippines, other other countries, Australia, of course, and you yes, know, we've got and, yes, and asking them, you know, are, do you, what do you need? Are you okay? And they always had this incredible gentle smile to them, and it was just like, no, we're fine. Yeah, mm. thank you. we got some food, please, but we're fine. Mm. And they yeah. their families together. They're very family oriented. So the grandmas, the aunts, the uncles, the nephews and nieces, everybody was together, helping each other. And I thought it was really mm. moved by that that. There was so much family camaraderie uh, as well. And that really was a, a, another big part of my desire at some point to go to Vietnam in 2012 was I really needed to see this. I really wanted to, okay, I've seen, I've met, I've worked with Vietnamese coworkers for years. They work in technology for years. I've been in cyber for years, but never said to myself, okay, now it's time to just pack it up and go. And in 2012, I made that trip. Yeah. Patrick, your recollections of the war 
um, may be different from the historical accounts. And the reason I'm wanting to explore this question was I know from my own perspective, mm -hmm. when I actually went to Ho Chi Minh or Saigon, as it used to be called, the war uh, museum in Ho Chi Minh yes. City is one of the places in all of my travels that I remember very distinctly and very clearly. It had a it had a, a, a physical and spiritual impact on me going through that museum. So I'm really curious to explore um, if you've been there, what you felt and, and how your childhood recollection differed from the historical accounts and, and your visits to Vietnam. I did have a chance to go to that museum as well in mm. Saigon. And I did see the planes out in front and I walked mm. through it. Uh, obviously, being an American, there was always so much mystery behind the war, even though it was on the news, it was in the papers. But from a perspective, until you actually physically go to Vietnam and actually see Correct. the buildings, the post office, the Notre Dame Cathedral, and obviously the presidential palace, you, you don't really have a perspective. And so when I was no. walking to the museum, it was more about not so much about feeling pain or feeling sorrow. It was more like, oh, Really, that really is exactly the way it happened. I really was not moved, Tony, until yeah. I took the tour of the presidential palace across the way. Yes, yes, park. yes. And you yes. see the tanks that actually went through. Yes. I covered this in the book a little bit as well, but there's a scene mm -hmm. in which in the book that I covered that where the tanks came through the fence and broke the fence down yeah, and yeah. those soldiers led the, the president out of the, out of the actual out of the building. When I was there in 2012 and I went there, the actual tank crews were still there. They reported to duty 25 years later every day like they were like it was yesterday. Yeah. And I didn't yeah. know that until I did the tour and I went around and saw everything and went down to the basement and saw where the president was trying to escape. And I ran into this man and he was one of the one of the tour guides. And I said, is this where the president was taken out? He goes, oh, yes. And he pointed to these four gentlemen and says they were the original tank crew. And I'm like. So I walked over Whoa. and I, I walked over to him and actually saluted them and because I was ex yeah. as well. And yes. I was and I kind of looked at them and I asked through my translator who was traveling with me, could you please ask them why they do this? As they felt it's their duty to still report for duty every single day. So even after the war was over, they still had that commitment to protect the palace. And uh, so that was really very moving. And then when I was mm -hmm. looking at the pictures, on the walls and seeing, and I saw that they were leading the president. I saw it in Time Magazine as a kid, leading the president yeah. out, outside the palace. Yes. The man that let him out was the tour guide that told me to talk to the tank guys. I went back to him oh, and go, Patrick. are you the guy? That, and he's like, so the commitment, the, the, the you know, the, the, the pride that they take. And so yeah. the translator had with me, the young lady was actually Vietnamese as well. She was actually from the local village and she's never been there. She works, she grew up in a coffee farm. So she's never oh. been to the palace before. So she's thanking me saying, I, I, I have so much pride. It's pretty country. special. Yeah. And pretty it was just so, so knowing that once you shed the, the war element mm. for, and get into mm. people to people meeting mm. and communicating, it really was very profound. But at the same time, I, I felt for them. Uh, I, I've been to the War Memorial in Washington, D.C. on the on mm. American side, and you've seen all 58,000 names that are on the wall. Um, but when you when you understand the Vietnamese side of it, it was three yes. million people that passed away yes. in the war. So yes. it's it's amazing to see that they had gives a different perspective. Doesn't perspective, it, and the people were very nice. Even the, the military that was mining the streets yeah. that were directing yes. traffic were like correct. They're like this, and I'm like, yeah, yeah. whoa, 
cool. <laughs> you know, but it was, it was <laughs> yeah. astounding. But no, I, I really think that um, it was it was interesting. And I finally found out why they why they felt that way. And my translator told me in a mm -hmm. very, very interesting way. She says, on that day is our unification. North unified yes. the South, South unified the North. Now, granted, there was a lot of ugliness afterwards. There oh, was no, yeah, there, there was. This was no roses and parades. But the reality, yeah. though, is that the country did unify. It took mm. several years to get it together. And then you look at it in modern day time. Uh, it's done well. Exactly. So it did bring an end to a war. Now, why this was so mm. important in modern time is this war ended. Period. Mm. It ended. Yes. Now, if you, ended. Look at, if you look at Afghanistan and Iraq and you look at Syria... Yep. They never yes. ended. They're, they yes. kept going. So the idea of having something end and having a new beginning is why the Vietnamese people celebrate that April 30th as their kind of... As they should. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Patrick, did you have the opportunity to visit any of the um, tunnels? I'm thinking specifically on um, the tunnels of, of Long Tan yeah. because of the Australian connection to those particular tunnels. But... Oh my goodness, they were so tiny, and I—it was mind blowing to think that they, the—the uh, the war was, you know, going on around and above them, and they were in these tiny claustrophobic tunnels. I did go into the Chuchi Tunnel. Uh, I bar I barely fit because I'm six one. Yes, uh, I could barely fit, but I but I have seen pictures during my military time of studying the war, and 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 definitely they had entire many cities underneath, and they had operating rooms, and they, they did. moved between tunnels. But fascinating. I it was really like a phenomenal, but it was something that our military wasn't prepared for. And among other no. things, a lot of things our military <laughs> wasn't prepared for. But yeah. that was a big one was understanding that this was their home territory. This was their turf. Yeah. They knew all trees. They knew where every hole they was. Where was. And our guys were like, well, wait a minute. And I'm you would have never known. You would have never known what was going on underground because on the top of the ground, it just looked like just land, yeah, land or orchards or what have you, rubber trees, etc. I did get Amazing. into one of the, I, I did get into one of the holes, but I had to stop because I was just I was too big to get through. They're tiny. But they're I did, so but I did tiny. take the flashlight and do this and kind of look around it as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now back to the book, Sunrise in Saigon. Um, the characters of the book, Jack Kendall and Ling Nu, I hope I pronounced that correct, yes. shed light on the toxicity that can exist in relationships in real life. I'm wondering. What's important and why was it important for you to write about these relationships in that, that way? And was it hard to write in such a way about those toxicities in those relationships? Well, it's interesting that the book really, from a fictional perspective, really took mm -hmm. an account two different lives that ended up being yes. parallel. And that you had an older gentleman that was going through a very tragic of life in his own way. And then you had a younger young lady that also was having a very different, you know, tragic life as well through her married life. And by fate calling, they kind of came together for a very brief, you know, romantic time. And obviously, yeah. you know, the cover of the book really has a lot of symbol to it. So you can see the cover, obviously. Yes. But the Saigon River really was the, probably the most mm -hmm. important part of understanding the story was even though they had, they shared a very brief love for each other and a very passionate love for a very short mm -hmm. time throughout the entire book they always had a river between them they they were trying to find ways to build bridges say look we're, we haven't seen each other in years I, I have my married life you have yours i'm having mm -hmm. my struggles you're having your struggles but they always had this 
goal at some point saying we're, we're going to find a way to come together and it, it just mm -hmm. never played out that way but how each person went back to dealing with their life and how each of them went through their own I don't want to say not recovery but kind of went through their next mm -hmm. rendition of life Jack mm -hmm. went one way and Jack you know obviously had a conclusion and moved on in life but Lynn also had to make the decision to stay or go and, and in the book of course she made her decision what she chose and and kind of the even towards the very end you're thinking okay it's they're gonna they're gonna find a way to you know connect the dots and uh that's what made the ending very exciting but it did take yes. you know two weeks to write the ending because a lot of my a lot of my beta readers were like well maybe they shouldn't and half said no maybe we shouldn't and they shouldn't make so anyway when you read the book at the end you'll realize you go okay, yes don't say don't don't give away the ending that, that's the way it kind of played out but uh, the nice thing is that the, the storyline does show that it, it, even in human life that even the most beautiful passionate mm -hmm. moments doesn't always last uh, and mm -hmm. for them, it started on 12-12 of 2012, which is once every yes. thousand years. So obviously, it was yes. very special. Um, but at the end, it was the, uh, you know, in every relationship, whether it's a marital or post-marital or external marital affair, um, somebody moves away first. Somebody is the one to yes. back away. And in yes. this one, as you can tell, you know, Lynn was the one that was starting to back away a little bit sooner while Jack was thinking, well, I could just build a bridge and we'll come over here and we'll do this. Mm -hmm. and, it's like, mm, well, wait a minute here. You know, I, I've got these responsibilities and so do you. And but it was a very um, it was very challenging to, you know, to talk to people that have been through something similar to this, especially with such a large age difference. And 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 many times it's does it last a week? Does it last a weekend? Does it last mm -hmm. six months? In this case, their relationship lasted close to almost 17 years. But after that moment of passion in life, uh, it, it never was the same. So that's why the cover was so important to know that there was always yes. going to be a river between them. Ah, so that's the significance of the cover. Was it an easy choice with that cover, Patrick? So I actually shot the cover myself when I was there in 2012. Uh, that okay. is actually a sunrise. I was staying in the Renaissance Hotel in District 1, and I was on the 18th floor. And I heard stories of the sunrise on the river is supposed to be incredible. The, the, yeah. the manager of the hotel told me coming in, uh, you know, make sure you, you get up early to see this, you know, the sunrise. So I, I actually got up before, you know, still dark. And I was kind of sitting by the window and had my phone camera. And I'm going, yeah. mm -hmm. I see a boat going by, another boat going by. I see, you know, this going by. And then suddenly the, the sun started peering up. And I had my yeah. camera probably took about seven or eight shots. Just oh. And I caught yeah. that shot, and then of course that became the cover. Yeah, it's a it's a beautiful shot, Patrick. You, well done. Um, so in talking about war, we can't not talk about the impacts of war. And I'm curious those memories you had as a young man, and then when you went to Vietnam in 2012, and you've been back subsequently. What do you think were some of the things that were left behind, the scars, if you like, across the land and the people? Honestly, I did not see very many scars. Everyone from Good. the hotel workers, everybody from the people I, I invested in a water company at the time. Uh, for reasons, I was cycling around in Vietnam, as I mentioned in the book. You know, Jack was a big cyclist as well. Yeah. And, and I found a lot of children had um, darkened teeth, like virtually no teeth. And many mm. of the outlining areas were drinking sugar. And so I stopped my my, my cycling oh. guide at the time and said, why, I don't know, why, why are the children all missing teeth? He goes, well, they drink sugar. 
not sugar water, sugar. They would just grind the sugar with rocks and then whatever came out became their, their drink because they couldn't afford clean water. So I found oh. a, somebody had kind of a water plant in one of the districts and I went over and cycled near it. And I said, hey, you know, tell me a little about how you're doing this. And he had three large osmos reverse osmosis tanks set up. And I said, I really have to get behind this. So I actually invested in it to help him clean up his plant and deliver a much cheaper water solution. And we started handing out free cases of water around some of the outlying districts where there was a lot of poor people. Uh, and that really was one of the things that I found. Again, you mentioned scars. You know, they, they yes, were very yes, open yes. to my help. There was there was no animosity towards. Oh, you're an American. We don't trust you. Uh, even though in the book I do kind of. That's good to know, I, though. Right? That in the book as well. There is in the book I do talk about the distrust and things, but in real life, mm-hmm. there, I didn't see that when I was there. People were very open. I think a lot of people were. Remember, a lot of the younger generation do not remember the war, and a lot of the history True. books do not talk about the war. So when I was bringing up oh. the nuns and bringing up, you know, when the Chinese invaded yes, in the yes, yes. they're all like, they don't remember because the government didn't teach that. So oh, in a lot of ways, it was the younger generation was like, who were most of the hotel workers and were the younger crowd. Mm-hmm. They were like, you know, Americans, I see you guys on TV all the time. It's the mm-hmm. older, older people. Yeah. Even yeah. the older people were just smiling and waving. So no, mm-hmm. I, I didn't get any sense of animosity or, or any support. The scarring part, to, to your point, mm-hmm. I think is more. I think it's not so much the American size. It was the it was the Cambodians. It was the Chinese. It was the economic problems. Um, yes, we were in the we were cycling in the Mekong River area, and yeah. I, I looked over this abandoned like cannery factory that was downriver. And the, my cycling guy told me, he "Goes well, actually, Taiwan built that, and they abandoned it. Now it's polluting the river." So that's, oh. that's those are the scars of today. It's the, econ- yeah. it's the economic boom. The yes. what it was the uh, solar panel company, First Solar, closed yes. their factory in Vietnam because they couldn't afford to build solar panels there, and that left mm. a open space. So the scarring of today is the economic growth of the two thousands. Is the pain, yes. not mm-hmm. the war mm-hmm. that ended back in seventy five as much. Yeah. That's that's actually really comforting to to hear, Patrick, that um, your perspectives on that, because, you know, it, it would be good to know that countries come out the other side of war yes. with some positivity versus the negativity that we tend to read about. So um, good to know that 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 is your perspective. Um, now, I want to touch back on the nuns and um operation baby lift and yeah. what you found out about that project um and how it worked and 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 how you found the nuns well the first of course that's a great question tony because the the pro- it really started when i was 11 and and they had a i guess it was on cbs news had a piece of showing president ford carrying a baby off a plane and oh. so i was intrigued by that going Okay, this you know this is not one of our most popular presidents. However, he has a soul, and so yes. and obviously he had a soul to believe in this. So he worked together with the Roman Catholic Church in America, and then the, the diocese in Vietnam to say, what can we do to help get these children out? And that's where mm-hmm. the Operation Baby Lift came from. Now, to be truth to be told, the first plane was a disaster. It was a tragedy that the plane did not make it out, but the second plane did. And I think was there a to- reason, Patrick, for that first plane was mechanical? Mechanical, I think, yeah. And okay. um, 
And then the second plane, and then the preceding planes got out, and over 1,500 orphans did get out. Now, which is not a lot, because there was a lot of mixed American babies left behind that were outcasts in society, as you know from the history yes. book. Yeah. But, but a good portion got out. The Catholic nuns were the ones that put them in the boxes, put them on the, on the tarmac to help get them on the planes and everything. So when I went there, and uh, as sort of my part of my desire to find out whatever happened to them, it, it took a little bit because, again, if you did a type in their version of yes. Google, it was blocked by the firewall because yes. that was an old history. And what yes. the government doesn't share that. But if you find a way to get around it, like I did, mm. you, you eventually <laughs> find that you eventually find I was just going to say, Patrick wouldn't be the one to find the way around the firewall. Yes, I know okay, nothing of cybersecurity. I know nothing about cybersecurity. Nada. <laughs> I don't hack anything. <laughs> <laughs> so I found a way to get around it. And then I found yes. that they were, they were in an orphanage north of the city. And there was a uh, one of the hotel workers uh, was Catholic as well. And I said, do you know this orphanage? Do you know this church? He goes, oh, yeah, I go there every Sunday for, for mass. Take, take me with you. So we went there and um, and I asked her, I said, do you know about these nuns? She goes, no, but I know who to ask. So she asked one of the older yeah. Monty nuns that were there and she kind of pointed to the front of the building and said oh you've got to go to the front of the building and go through the big iron gates and eventually you know i did and we eventually found them and we found four of them that were still alive and that was just like amazing wow, wow. so I, I do cover a lot of this in the book again it's part of a yes. There's some fiction to it, but the the non-fictional event was I, I did find them, uh, and uh, and I had spent about two or three hours with them. And uh, now, what was really interesting was the two of them spoke French, and so I had to remember high school French because I remember. Oh the, no, high school two, French is so different. <laughs> well, but a lot of them were there when the French were there in the '50s. So mm. one, two of the nuns were there. They were in their late '80s, and and they spoke French and then one spoke Vietnamese and then my translator that was with me helped you know provide some some context but I had to speak some French even though I know very little of it I had enough to sort of get it get you know get it going but it was very uh interesting to hear the stories of you know what happened at the airport they were there when the plane went down they were there mm -hmm. rushing to try to you know find what they could who they could say they loaded up the second planes they kept running back and forth between the orphanage and the airport while the city's getting bombed and you know and tanks are coming in and everything so they were incredibly brave women but i i waited till the very end to ask why didn't you leave why, yeah. why didn't you get out you had a chance to yeah. you know to to hightail out on the last flight out and they just said no all the children got out and come to mm -hmm. find out, a lot of children didn't get out and so they had to get all the children back to the orphanage so there was an entire drama of loading them on school buses and everything pull carts anything and anything to get the children back into the orphanage area and, and yeah. while they were doing that north Vietnamese tanks were rolling right down and the funny thing was not funny but the dramatic thing was the tanks that were rolling down were the same tanks that turned left and went to the palace that broke through the gate so there was this divine Amazing. intervention of some form that mm -hmm. happened i cover this in the book as well about the divine yes. intervention the experience but literally, they were literally in the streets with boxes of babies, and they looked up there and they saw the tanks oh. coming, and then the tanks at the last moment veered and went down another road. And those are the tanks that ended up eventually, you know, at the palace. But really just having those moments and to actually walk on that road and, and see where this yeah. whole thing came out. Um, it was it was dramatic. It was I was very emotional. Um, I, mm -hmm. I actually had a couple of rosaries from my grandmother that I carried with yes. me, and I gave yeah. my rosaries to 
the nuns. I said, here's my gift to you for, for, because I've wanted to see them since I was 11. And at that point, but really to, to witness that. And then on, on the way out, you know, when the iron doors closed and everything, and I was standing in the street with the translator, I had this really, I don't know, I must say difficult, but a very challenging Mm. sense of emptiness because Mm. I've been waiting so long to find them that I finally mm. did. And it took me a moment to get it together because I really was uh, emotional about, wow, it took you 11 to your 49, you know, to see this. And and now what? <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. So, and I knew at some point in life, I'd have to write about it. And that's kind of what also, why it made it into the, into the book eventually. Patrick, did you find out what happened to the babies? Did they go to, did they go out over the globe? Did they just go back to the US? Did they go into further um, orphanages? What happened to the babies? Initially went to Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines and then eventually went Ah. to Medina Air Force Base in Okinawa. And then the Mm. babies, a lot of them were brought to America. Some were brought to Europe uh, Mm. and some were sent to Canada as well. Um, and then they also had an idea of where the children end up. The, the really beautiful story was that the nuns told me is that many of the children have come back. And, oh. of, and so they they found a way to come back and find us. And they actually created a Facebook group and other social medias over the years to, oh, that's to beautiful. each other. So the, nun, the nuns did tell me that many of the children have found a way to, to come home. And, uh, and they were just astounded. Now, obviously, they don't remember each other from a face-to-face no. perspective, but they remember the feeling. They they remember the, you know, the, you know, the nuns are explaining to the children, hey, you all were just this big. You're, we put you in little mm. boxes. There was mm. no way, there were some little, maybe four or five years old, maybe, mm. but the most were very little small children. And uh, and they explained the story of what happened that day. And uh, yeah, but they did tell me a few of them did make it home. Oh, that's lovely that's lovely they're very special the orphanages in um vietnam are very special places to visit because the children really are you know loved and protected as best they can with with very little you know yes yeah well that's so i do cover a piece in the book i did bring up a non-fictional topic but a fictional storyline on how many of the children are basically kind of adopted by uh, by countries that are wanting to raise the children to work in factories and I, it's a controversial part of the book that i wrote that talked about is this human smuggling or are they taking children off the street so they don't yeah. become adopted by the drug lords mm-hmm. and they get put to work in a factory making nike shoes somewhere in pakistan and i wrote that piece in the book and the, the a lot of the beta readers that kind of went through that kind of gave me is this ugh, you know they gave me that kind is of it, weird look i said yes. you know but but reality is that a lot of these development countries have challenges with their the children's trafficked yes exactly. how children and babies are trafficked exactly yes. how do you how do they cope with it? so the i narrated a kind of a fictional storyline that mm. it did take a few of the beta readers to read a few times and then by the time they read it a third time they went okay oh. right now i get it it's either okay. that or they would have been stolen and sold off versus mm. somebody come and grab 20 of them say i'm going to put you in a place i'm going to give you food give you clothing give you medical and i'm going to teach you a skill the skill is you're going to make nike shoes but mm. the fact that you're no longer living on the streets anymore. Mm. So there was, there's, a, and that really does happen in a lot of these development countries. So I do have a piece of that in the book as well about how the children and some of the orphanages could not take care of all the children. Some did yeah. end up on the streets as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm guessing that 
there would not be as many orphaned babies and children now versus at wartime. But there's still those scenarios still happen, don't they? There's still a need for orphanages, particularly in poor countries like Vietnam. There is. And, you know, that's a great, great question, a great comment as well, Tony, because when you cycle through Ho Chi Minh City, Mm -hmm. which is Saigon, there was 13 mm-hmm. districts. I cycled through yes. 11. <laughs> so I know them pretty well. And I was going to say, it's a big place. <laughs> it, is, it is. And there's eight. There's big eight and nine. bustling. Oh, gosh, Patrick, I've just got an image of you knowing what the traffic's like and thinking, oh my goodness, how did you manage to, to cycle through that traffic safely? Well, so I, I, I love cycling. As you can tell by my wall, I've cycled yes. all over the world and everything. I love yes. cycling. And yes. I take it on the plane with me wherever I go. Mm. Cycling to me is one of my passions in life. And I, it mm. always has been. It, it always is. Mm. What, made it, what made it interesting about cycling in those districts, and it kind of brings mm. to your point about you yes. know orphanage and, and poverty, you could be cycling through District 1 and it looks like Singapore. High rises, condos, shopping malls, yeah. Starbucks. They, I was there when the McDonald's opened. I'm like, why? You know, you got the best organic <laughs> food in the world. Why are you eating this crap? Right. But but they opened a the McDonald's. McDonald's is everywhere. And there was a Taco Bell there and a KFC. I'm like, people, you're gonna look yes. like us in 20 yes. years, right? Yes. <laughs> so stay open yes. junk food. Yes. But but they were lining up for it. But um, what was interesting though, by riding in District One, to me, it looked like Singapore. And then you ride through mm-hmm. District Five, and then you start to get to District Eleven, and suddenly you're thinking, "Yes, okay, that's that's poverty. That's poverty mm-hmm. beyond poverty." Yeah. And District Thirteen was where the Warden District was that I invested in, so that was in an outlining area. And mm-hmm. so there is a very you can turn left by the market and now you're in a very, very challenging yeah. place. Children are living on the street. Two blocks away, they're driving a BMW they just imported. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned yeah. the traffic and the roads. There's yes. 8 million people that live in, in Ho Chi Minh City. There's yes. 30 million scooters because people have two at home. The roads are not made for scooters. They are not made for cars. And these mm-hmm. children that dare to get on their bikes and cycle is like they're like the bravest children alive when I when absolutely I absolutely that's, that's, why, that's why the proceeds of my book and coffees are going mm-hmm. to helmets for kids in Vietnam. So yeah. this is actually a helmet that is made in Vietnam. And yes. I've actually so the proceeds of my helmet are going to make these helmets. Uh yes. it got started in 2000 by President Bill Clinton when he was there visiting. Uh, and the organization to date has made almost 1 million helmets in 20 years. And they've distributed Fantastic. Vietnam, Thailand, uh, India as well. And mm-hmm. so to me, being a cyclist, obviously, I saw firsthand, you know, the dangers of these mm-hmm. kids. So when I started getting putting the book together, I then looked for a charity that I can align to. And that's when I got mm-hmm. contacted to uh, Helmets for Kids in Vietnam. So mm-hmm. my proceeds, my book, my coffee and everything all goes mm-hmm. to help support the kids. But to see it firsthand, when you have five-year-olds that are dodging cyclists or the scooters uh, and the cars yeah. you yeah. know and, and just to see that tragedy but there is good news that there is help there is helmet laws in vietnam now which are helping it and obviously having you know contributors like myself to help you know raise more money to make more helmets is a good thing as well absolutely i was going to say patrick when i volunteered um in the hospitals the number one um issue that they were dealing with was um motorbike yes. uh, bike accidents and they were just prolific no helmets you know broken bones legs arms all of that um so yeah it's a pretty important and 
they never, none of them ever used to wear helmets at all, did they? In that no, traffic, there's, like there's a, there's completely, a lot, completely scary. Yeah, yes, a lot now they have to wear it, but it's but it's not for the cycles; it's, it's for the motorbikes. So yes. you can everybody that rides you a bike, it's like no helmet on the bike. You can no. still, yeah, you can still kill yourself on a on a on a push bike just as much as on a um a motorbike. But yes, it, the, the the thought of uh, cycling through that city landscape my goodness patrick my goodness but it was good though i mean it, 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 the yes. good thing was if you want to see it and, and by the way you, you may not be you can it, see it that's my jersey from vietnam uh, and yeah. it kind of has a little tagline saying you know see see vietnam from you know from behind the wheel and yes. it, so really cycling there was the best way to see the country see the people yeah, I, yeah. obviously i got inspired to get involved in the water business it inspired mm. me to get into helmets for kids as well mm. but when mm. you really come to the country and you see the openness of people and and really kind of the warmth of it even even when i was like completely out of like no no more energy whatsoever and i'm on the side of the road i was sitting yeah. down i had nothing an, an elderly gentleman came up and gave me a cup of tea and and I was so moved oh. by that. And I was like, I kind of like, thank you. <laughs> you know, yeah. so I, had, I was sweating and I was like, you know, yes. but, but to see that kindness is is definitely we need They're more. They're very that. beautiful. I, again, I'll say it again. They are the most beautiful people. Truly, just gorgeous human beings. Um, Patrick, you're still involved with the water project in Vietnam. No, actually, I sold off in 2016, and yeah. truth to be told, it was open for a year. Actually, the factory yes. was open longer than that, but my involvement was about a year. Yeah. Uh, it did really well from a standpoint of we created new products. We actually right. we lowered the cost of water so it could be affordable. We started giving away a lot of free water in jugs and sports bottles to yeah. local communities, and then any profits we made per month we donated them to the catholic nuns to help support the orphans and we donated to some of the buddhist temples as well and we did that for for, for about a year now obviously in a development country not everybody plays fair um Mm. and it's more and more exposure you get the more people come by going yeah a little low you haven't registered your vehicle yet he doesn't have a license uh we need we need to correct it so after a a few (sighs) rounds of um you know, donations to some local non-charitables, it finally got to the point where that became more dominant than the sale of the water. And Mm -hmm. so eventually I sold off my piece of it. We sold most of the factory to a scrapyard who ended up doing something with the metal as well. And, but everything I sold from the scraps, I divided between the temples and the Catholic nuns as well Mm -hmm. and left and gave money to the, to the workers as well and Mm -hmm. thanked them for what they did. But for a good year, every month, it was very nice how many waters we're selling and how much donations we were giving to the causes fantastic fantastic um the helmets for kids was that something that you just stumbled upon by virtue of you cycling through vietnam or had you known about it before you went didn't know i i didn't really know until mm-hmm. 2019 i, I yeah okay so I started writing the book um, in 2019 and during COVIDism, and I was still working in technology at the time, and I really was getting kind of sick of working in technology. I was in it 27 years, and I said, you know what, I just, so time to time yeah. to shift gears and move left. So uh, I started writing full-time, and the first thing I did is I broke out the yellow notepaper, and I just started writing the book, and I was baiting on memory of, of trips and things. When the book got picked up by a publisher, it got picked up by Austin Macaulay Publishers out of New York. 
I was obviously extremely thrilled to be signed as, as, a, as a writer. Mm-hmm. But the next thing I thought about was, okay, what, what else do you, you know, what do you really want to do with this? Where do you see this going? And I started researching on Helmets for Kids and it brought up mm-hmm. Helmets for Kids in Vietnam. And I did the whole background and, and I realized that not only was President Clinton involved early on, but Senator John Kerry was involved. And then in 2018, the actress Michelle Yeoh became the global ambassador for the program. So that was like, okay, this is really sounds great. And of course, I had a chance to meet the founder, Greg, uh, before. And so it just seemed like this is a great organization. It was good. Yeah. So, I, so the first thing that came out was I started coming out with coffee mugs. So yes. and I like my coffee brand that I have and my logo, of course, as well. And, and at the bottom, you know, making, you know, espresso, you know, one, one, one espresso at a time. And then I released a, a coffee brand with different coffees. This is actually the one called, uh, obviously, Sunrise and Saigon Coffee yeah. as well. So I, I was just going to, I was going to ask you, how did you get into coffee? Yeah, but so, I'll do that in a minute. <laughs> so, so coffee was the first two products that I started selling. And then I've raised almost $1,800 um, so far in since May. And I donated back to Helmets for Kids. Now with the book coming out on November 30th, the proceeds yeah. of the book as well. But the, I really wanted to start kind of getting the thing going. So the coffee mugs were first, then I had coffee mm-hmm. second. And then now that now they obviously the book will be coming out as well. Yeah. And then the good thing is that since I donated some money, they've made almost 180 helmets so far. So and that's Fantastic. May of this year. So my goal is to next year is to have a thousand helmets made. Uh, for the children but yeah I, I did some research i'm very pleased with the organization um they're a great great group of people i and i'm just very very proud to be able to support them oh amazing amazing patrick so do you think that you'll continue um i just had an idea then you could almost do a cycling book tour but then again it's hard to transport the books on the bike so you'd need a backup crew to transport the books with your biking cycling book tour well that's kind of how i that's how my logo came about so on the book yeah. is, that's what <laughs> cycle rider so it has the pen running through the bike so um yeah. so actually i have seven books total and you kind of see on my shoulder i've got the different mm-hmm. covers of the other ones that are coming out yeah. my next one is due out uh, next july which is codename dragon vault that's actually going to be a fictional novel as well it's going to deal with bitcoin hacking kind of gets into my cyber background uh... Jack yes. Kendall does survive and he moves on to the. That the was my book. next question. Jack does Jack Linda's, okay. Linda's not. Lynn will not move on until book six. He shows up later in Paris. But in the next book, it really goes more towards my cybersecurity and Bitcoin background uh, as well, which obviously is perf- perfect timing with the, you know, the way of the world right now. Um, but yeah, I do have a second one coming out next year. Now, I'm going to be using. Uh, so Helmets for Kids will always be tied to. Sunrise and Saigon. Sunrise and Saigon. Yes. Codename Dragon Vault is actually going to have a um a, a similar charity in Taiwan. So every mm-hmm. book I'm writing, and then the one after we'll that go is, to a charity. Exactly. So the third one is okay. actually going to be over there, which is called Shores yes. of Okinawa. That actually has a charity in Japan. So every mm-hmm. book I've written is in a different country that has something to do with mm-hmm. cycling, hacking. Yes. Bitcoin, right. So, but every one of the books will have a charity specific. So I'm looking for helmets for kids in Taiwan and one in China, and then obviously one in, in, in Hungary as well. But the, as, as many books as Saigon are sold, the proceeds will always be going to the ones in Vietnam. Fantastic. Fantastic. Patrick, I'm curious to know what the process was to get um, your publisher on board. So how did that go for you? Did you did you pitch to them? Like, how did that work for you? Because oh, all perfect. authors have a different publisher story. So I'm really curious about yours. 
So uh, it's a great question because I've seen some of your other interviews as well, and everybody has a different perspective of a publisher. And many times, they do. Many times, it's foul language we can't say in television. But um, but many publishers, um, when you, when I sent query letters out, I got the usual rejection letters and things, and yeah. I, I didn't take it personally at all. But also, yeah. Macaulay was coming out of the. I, I would say more of a controversial time. They were in 2015. They were labeled as a vanity. They had a lot of bad press coming out of the UK. Oh. And so when I talked to them in 2020, when they got my manuscript, you know, they showed up with, this is how much it's going to cost. And everyone said, whoa, whoa, whoa. If this is a legitimate publisher, you shouldn't be paying it's them. They should be paying you. But tragedy be spoken, you still have to hire an editor. You still have to pay for the cover. You still have to. I was just going to say, books take a lot of money to get out of your head and into a physical book. Uh, You know, the the landscape of publishing has changed completely in the last few years. So, in which is, I actually think, is quite a good thing because it actually means that anyone out there listening can write a book and get and get and get it and get it published by a publisher and of course we would all like big name publishers but does it matter your book is being published you have readers does it matter yeah well no you you hit it beautifully dear very much it's about getting your book out and Mm -hmm. so I looked at it as okay I still have to pay this money because I I need the hardback I need the I need obviously the paperback I need an ebook and I need an audible book if yes. you add up the cost of all four of those compared yeah. to what Austin McCauley was going to charge, I said, okay, I'm going to go with them because they're going to get mm-hmm. the book out. Now, the good thing is when I did my research with them after 2015, and he started looking at them in 2018, 19, and I actually went and bought almost 40 of their books off their website. And I read all 40 of them. And I started oh. looking at the quality of their work going, you know what? Good quality, good editing, good covers, yes. good legal work. You know, all the ISBN mm-hmm. numbers were accurate. So any everybody that in publishing was sort of like, oh, no, you don't want a vanity. Well, wait, wait a minute. They're not a vanity anymore. They actually became a full-blown publishing house. And I've had right. incredible experience with them over the last two years. They've been wonderful. The editing's been great. Communication mm-hmm. is great. Um, you know, right now we're talking marketing with them about, you know, what are we going to do podcasts together? What are we going to do? Uh, mm-hmm. Get ready for the big launch. Mm-hmm. But now the book is out coming on november 30th i got all the pre-copies shipped to me last week i've got more coming oh that must be exciting i'm beyond words i got to deliver a copy to my mother over the weekend in in dc it was incredible i signed it for her and everything and so book one is out book one is hitting now the other four over here i have to make a decision if i'm going to self-publish or am i going to work with austin mccauley and i'm in conversations with them to say look i've got seven books I know you guys like doing one at a time, and I think I'm okay with that. But at the same time, you know, I, I want to make a look at the options. But to get your first book out, get it done with a professional it's, firm. Awesome McCauley has been fantastic. Yeah. And, and it's a big undertaking. I'm not sure yes. that people realize that the not. time and energy that goes into writing a book and then all the processes along the way, it just never stops. So it, there's beta readers and there's editors and editors, editors. and editors. <laughs> and editors. 
then it gets close to the end and you'll go through and there'll be uh you'll find a missed capital or a misspelt word and it's back to the drawing board and uh and and then there's the cover and the presentation and the fonts and there's a lot involved in producing i know the formatting drove me crazy patrick when this actually so this is 285 pages when i wrote this it was uh 126,000 words. And I was thinking this was going to be thin. It wasn't going to be, when this came, <laughs> when this showed up last week, I'm like, oh. I like oh, this. so I was kind of blown away. <laughs> but again, because they're pros, they know this has to fit on the bookshelf at Barnes and Noble. It's got to be through Amazon. And, and that's what you're paying for. So if someone came yes. to me and saying, should I trust, trust them? They know what they're mm-hmm. doing. You're going to get a finished product. Go buy yeah. some I always tell writers, if you really want to see what it's like to work through them, go on their website, buy a few books, austinmccauley.com slash UK, go on there and buy some books and read them. And if you think the book is, eh, then fine, move on. But they were very, very nice. Now, the funny thing was after I signed with them and I started moving transcripts back and forth, the one challenging thing I I always encourage people that are writers, Mm -hmm. have multiple people edit your book because definitely I did that too Patrick I had four I think Um, I worked with one predominantly and I picked her because of her background across um, psychology writing and editing and then the others were you know structural edits story like there's whatever part of the book you can think of there's an editor specifically for that but it makes a difference to your book doesn't it and don't pick people that love you. Pick people who don't even know you. And that's what you want them I mean, to honestly, challenge you. You 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 want people to look at that going, look, I have no clue who you are, man. But and and you want them to really come at it as hard as possible. Now, with that being said, I did have my own experiences with editors where they came back. Now I'm I'm dyslexic. I've been dyslexic since I was a child, yes. so I was not yes. built right. But I yes. still okay. Life is good. I get but, that. But to get the but the funny thing was they would come back and say, Oh, your 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 prepositions were this. I go, I'm out. Did you get the story? Did you get Jack and Lynn doing the uh, you know, did yeah. you get it? Well, yeah, but let me get back to this. This preposition I, I had to move your verbs <laughs> over here, and I'm like, and I'm like, it's not fifth grade, lady. Drop the red pen, you know. And finally, it took me like three hours of just saying, look, you're not getting it. I I want you to help me know that I structured this right. Did you read it? Yes. Did you and the it? rest can come, yeah. can't it? You know, it yeah, doesn't... sometimes editors can be the most finicky, but you need them. Oh yes, you need yes. each other. You want to yes. find product. But the point of the publisher is to have that fine NQA, that quality assurance at the end. And, and Austin right. did a phenomenal job on the QA. They came back multiple times says, we're not getting the ending. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, why not? Well, we think you should end it this way. I said, no, yeah. it's got to end this way. And to be, to be transparent, they were very cool about it eventually. Now at yeah. the beginning, they wanted to really dictate the middle, the ending, you know, this should be this way because we think it'll mm-hmm. sell. I go, yes, but it's not how the story should be. Uh-huh, and uh-huh. so as a writer, you still have to own yeah. the story. You, and You do. And you have to, and there's moments where you have to back yourself self to right. and actually push back and go, well, actually, no, yes. this, <laughs> this, this, you're <laughs> taking it this way and it's actually meant to go this way so sometimes you have to and I it took me a long while I must say to grasp that I could push back and go yeah no that just that's not the way I want to write this particular 
section of the book. It needs to actually be this, this, and this. So there's a bit, there's a whole lot of learning, isn't there, Patrick? Well, I agree. And I and I saw one of your interviews you did with a gentleman that was very fascinating that he talked about how he, he he was thinking about it wasn't about the publishing, it was about the continuum after the book was out. And yes. one of the things I always talk to my you know fellow writers about, I, I also host a podcast as well. I host one on Saturdays called Writers. Yes, Are- I know. I had a look. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> you do follow it. Already checked that out. <laughs> Thank you. But, it, but on that podcast, to your point, I do talk to writers about their experiences. And always mm-hmm. I tell them, you have to have a continuum. It isn't about the day the book comes out. It's about what is it's- your... What is There's your, a lot more afterwards. Agreed. Patrick. But what's your expectation? I interviewed a, a young lady a few weeks ago who wrote the book, you know, A Place to Take Root. She was a wonderful mm-hmm. Korean student. And I, I've known her personally on a, on a personal level. And I always ask her, what's your continuum? What's your plan after the book is released? And she's mm-hmm. like, I'm going to go on vacation. I go, it's not the continuum. <laughs> As a writer, I always encourage writers to think about is your expectation to be John Grissom or is your expectation to have the book come out and know that you can respect your own story? And you mm. have to remember that when you look at the book sales and you're only sold 10, mm. you thought you sold 100 yes. or whatever, and you're starting yes. to stress going, I, no one ever read my book. You did. did and yes. you read it. Did and you like that's it? the thing that matters the most. You wrote yeah. it. You read it. It's done. And yes, it would be wonderful for all of us to be international bestsellers, but that doesn't always happen. And you have to actually, you're right, Patrick, you actually have to think about that. What's next? I've um, just glanced down at the time and thought, oh my goodness, I've had so much fun talking to Patrick. I'm completely <laughs> out of time. And we need to talk about quickly the launch date where they can get the book and the proceeds of the book. One last time, go Patrick. Absolutely. So the book is launching on November 30th. You can go to sunriseinsaigonnovel.net and buy it there. You can do a pre-order today. I do have a pre-order link that you can order. And this weekend, because this is Flash Friday and Cyber Monday, 35% off all paperback as well. All proceeds of the book and the coffees are going to Helmets for Kids in Vietnam. I have a little video up on my YouTube channel as well yes. that shows it. But no, I love being on the show. And we so- have the links in the yes. attached to the um, talking points today. Otherwise, just type in Sunrise in Saigon in a Google search and it will go no, directly back. No, yeah, Sunrise in Saigon novel and it'll yes. take your right novel.net. And that's that's uh, the website. There's a pre-order button available today. You can order the yes. book. All please do. Oh, no, please. It's a great book. A lot of fun. It was, it was great writing it. But I have to tell you, Tony, I'm a huge fan of you. And I thank you for having me on your show. And this is oh, a great, it's, I know we've been working on getting on this show for pleasure. a while. So thank you for having my me. My pleasure, my pleasure, my pleasure. Um, I'm so glad it's finally at this point for you. But I actually know that there'll be so much more for you. Patrick Greenwood, thank you so much for spending time with us today. I can't wait till we chat again soon. Bye for now, everyone. Thanks, Patrick. Thanks, thanks for having me. Good evening, America, and welcome to everyone listening across the planet. This is the Author and Artist Hour. Writing ten poems a day sometimes. Sometimes I could go weeks without writing, but then when it came, it just hit me and that was like.